This year, the Review of Journalism turns 40. Welcome to Reviewed. Welcome to Reviewed. Welcome to Reviewed, where we go through the past 40 years of the Review of Journalism to understand if the stories are still relevant and impactful today. Join us as we ask. Are the issues still relevant? Is the reporting controversial? How has journalism changed over the years? After four decades on assignment, it's time for the review to be reviewed. Eternity Martis is an assistant professor in the School of Journalism at Toronto Metropolitan University. She's an award-winning Toronto-based journalist and editor. She's also the author of They Said This Would Be Fun, Race, Campus Life, and Growing Up. She joins us to talk about her time on the Review of Journalism masthead and her articles Collateral Damage and A Capital Idea, published in the spring 2016 edition of The Review. Collateral Damage is about the use of language in reporting on gun violence and Black communities in Canada. A Capital Idea is about capitalizing the B in Black when reporting on their communities. Could you tell us a little bit about the inspiration behind Collateral Damage? Why did you feel drawn to the story? So I had been writing stories about race and racism for a few years by then, by the time I had written Collateral Damage. And I wanted to look at the bigger issue of gun and gang violence in Toronto. Um, I've lived here my whole life and knew that it was an issue, but I never liked the way that it was framed. It was always framed as something that um, overrepresented black communities. It framed uh, gun violence as an inherently a problem inherent to the black community. And it created a lot of fear. And so what I really wanted to do with the story was speak to the journalists covering crime and gang violence and see what they thought of it, what they thought of the stereotypes that were being reproduced, if they were uh, reproducing those stereotypes. I wanted to look at, um, you know, when they report on Jane and Finch, was it really Jane and Finch or was it a different intersection that got kind of mixed up with Jane and Finch? I, when I was reading the article, you kind of talk a little bit about the difference between um, the coverage on like white middle class victims of gun violence versus black victims. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that and like what the um, effect could be on uh, the community? Yeah, so there's a really big difference in how we view white victims of gun violence versus black victims of gun violence. And we continue to see that today. And really, when it comes to white victims, so in the story, I talk about Jane Kriba um, and the Justice Zertz case, where there were white women involved who were killed, um, hit by a stray bullet. And so when we see stories like this, we see a lot of coverage of uh, talking about how they came from a really good family, that they were loved, um, that they had their whole lives ahead of them, that they had an education. And when we see black victims of uh, gun violence, it's actually the opposite. So we don't hear any of those things. We never see comment from their families in a story. We see victim blaming, that they must have done something to deserve it, that they had a criminal record, that they were suspended from school. So there's a very big difference in how we see both victims based on race. And really, when it comes to Black communities, they're actually blamed for dying, for being victims of gun violence. And where we have white people who are victims of crime, they're actually seen as you know not deserving of this happening. And actually, journalists tend to go the extra mile to talk about how successful they were, that they were upstanding citizens, where we don't see that with Black victims of, of violence. Could you just talk a little bit about how journalists specifically uh, can 
feed into narratives when they report on specific neighborhoods? Yeah. So I think with journalists, journalists are people. Our job is to be objective and impartial. And the reality is that every decision we make, whether we omit something or include something, the angle we take, the people we speak to, those are all decisions based on bias, right? And if we look at our industry, it is still notoriously white. It's one of the whitest industries in the country. If we look at the research, the sparse research that we have. So you have white journalists coming into the newsroom with these biases, and then they go and put that into their reporting because they haven't checked those biases. So what happens then is that somebody might think, for example, that Black people are inherently criminal, and they might hyper-focus on a certain neighborhood, and they might use language, right? Um, dangerous, brazen shooting, bloodbath, bloodshed uh, to describe that, where they wouldn't use that to describe it, for example, if it was a white person committing the crime. And so if we continue to put out crime stories that overrepresent Black communities because a journalist feels that Black people are the ones committing the crime, then the viewer or the reader is going to say, you know what, I think that's true. It must be true. The reality is that the way that we see news and the overrepresentation of Black people in crime reporting, it doesn't reflect the actual arrest rate. So there's a big difference. That's racism. And so it's so important when journalists do go into a newsroom that they leave those biases at the door, or at least they start to unlearn them and check themselves. And I just wanted to ask kind of what, if you could talk a bit more about how white people are afforded this whole other um, element to their stories when they're criminals versus black people. Yeah. So if we look at even recent examples, so we have Gabriel Wortman, we have Bruce MacArthur. Um, let's use those two for Canadian examples. When those stories came out and both of them committed absolutely heinous, atrocious crimes, what the media did, what Canadian journalism did, let's start with Bruce MacArthur, was they posted a photo of him um, at Niagara Falls smiling. That was the first mistake. And the queer and trans community, um, the black community, many communities were really critical of that. And they said, why would you post this photo? And the police said, well, he's not wanted. He's in custody. So we can, you know, it's okay. We don't have a mugshot. But there have been many cases of black victims, one here in um, in Toronto, in the GTA, Mohamed So, for example, um, who was killed. And the police and several news outlets used a photo, um, a mugshot of him. And that mugshot was actually from middle school when he was bullied and the people that he was with put some merchandise in his bag. And nobody thought to think about to check that. And so there's a disparity there with with Bruce MacArthur, we had stories about how he was a mall Santa, uh, about his life. You know, um, we had headlines where it said, you know, MacArthur was was quiet. Uh, you know, his family never suspected it. Uh, they're shocked. They're surprised. With Gabriel Wartman, some one of the publications took out one of his yearbook photos. They talked about his passion for being a um, a dentist. It was really kind of strange that these. It takes away from the accountability, and we don't see that with Black victims. We don't even see that with Black criminals. And there have been ample studies, particularly out of the U.S., because in Canada, we're still trying to catch up on race-based data and those types of studies. Um, but there's a study that I use in my reporting on race class um, by Laura Frizzle, um, and it talks about how white shooters, for example, are portrayed 
and black shooters. And in 97% of the newspaper headlines and stories that they read, they found that when it was a, a white person committing a crime, it was attributed to mental health. It was attributed to something out of their control. So they just snapped or someone bullied them or a woman rejected them. Um, they were seen as deserving of redemption. Their families were quoted. Um, and it was it was seen as an individual problem. When it was a black person committing a crime, it was seen as a problem with the entire race that called for deportation, that ca called for harsher sentencing. Um, it brought up that you know they came from single parent homes. It brought up that they were going nowhere in life, that they had a criminal record, even though that record had nothing to do with what had happened. Journalists have a tendency to rely heavily on police. Um, and what they're reporting and what they're sharing. And can you talk about what happens when when that happens? Yeah, police and journalists actually had a very lengthy friendship and they exchanged information. There was a time when they would go to bars together and, you know, police would share stories and journalists would take notes and, and vice versa. But after, you know, some time, um, what had happened was that journalists started investigating police, namely around uh, the Rodney King beating. Uh, and so all of a sudden, police were in the spotlight. And what they did was they created their own communications department that release information when they want to release information. And the police are supposed to be a source of journalists. But if you go to a police presser or you've watched a police presser, when a journalist asks a question, especially here in Toronto, um, in Canada, really, they don't give answers. We're supposed to be asking them questions, but they don't answer us or they say no comment or we can't comment further. So why that's a problem is that as journalists, we have been trained to use police as the ultimate source, but they have their own agendas and they know that journalists still do that. So they give information that could work in their favor to get public sympathy. A great example of this is when George Floyd was murdered and there was a story that ran um, in a U.S. publication and the headline said that George Floyd had a criminal record and it was the police chief of the city that had said that. And so when I think about that and I think about that story, the journalists there got really played because there's nothing that could justify murdering a unarmed black man, right, um, who asked to stop, who said that he couldn't breathe. But we now have this police chief who knows that, who got interviewed by a journalist, and that journalist went and published that. And so what I was saying about how people believe what we write and report on, they're going to read that and say, oh, yeah, he must have deserved it because he had a criminal record that had nothing to do with this. So it becomes a real problem when we use police instead of talking to the communities, instead of talking to the victims of, of gun and gang violence, instead of you know giving context. The context is so important there. So even if you do speak to a police officer, there should be some context there for what police do. So for example, if we're talking about gun violence and we do quote a police officer, we should also talk about, you know, the the statistics of police shooting unarmed black people. And that's kind of a way to counter or to add to the story so that we just don't rely just on that single narrative. Can you talk about uh, the course that you teach at TMU uh, reporting on race, black Canadians in the media, and like maybe how this could help give journalists the tools to kind of like start thinking about these things? So when I wrote the story, which was, I think, 2016, and I asked the journalists at the time who were reporting on gang and gun violence, I asked them a lot of questions. A lot of journalists didn't want to talk to me. 
And a lot of them who did talk to me were very uncomfortable. One actually recorded me on the other side as I was recording them because they were worried that um, I would get something wrong, understandably. But I think what we're seeing is that nothing has really changed. It's really important. Those, those stories were very important, but it was a different time that you were so afraid to even talk about racism or talk about the racism issue in in that kind of reporting. But obviously we have my course now reporting on race where we do talk about that. And I bring that up because although some things have changed, a lot hasn't. And so a lot of what I've created in the course was also based on that article on that feature. And we have a week in week two where we talk very extensively about gang and gun violence and the rise of racist crime representation in Canada. And it's really important for me to talk to students about that because I think it really sets the tone of how we talk about black communities in Canada because it does start a lot with crime. Across North America, black people are seen as inherently criminal. So how do we unpack that and how do we do that by looking at what's been done. So we look at the Just Desserts case. We talk about Jane Kriba. Um, we talk about um, you know cases in Toronto that were high profile, where, for example, there was a white victim, but the the shooter was a black man. And we look at the framing, the language in that. How was it framed? What was the impact on the black community at the time? A lot of those stories, for example, Just Desserts, um, the black community was heavily discriminated against after that. So what was done, and how how do we do better from there? And then that sets the tone for the rest of the course. How can we unlearn bias? How can we take what we've learned in this week too about the language used to talk about black communities? And how do we make it better based on what we know today and the language that we use today um, and the world that we live in today? Because today, a lot of those stories would never get published. But what I want students to really understand is that when you have headlines um, you know, saying that black people should be deported and you call them urban terrorists and you say that, you know, they caused crime because they were raised by their grandparents. When you do that, that goes through several hands, right? A writer wrote that, that was approved by an editor. Maybe then it was approved by a deputy editor. Then it went through copy editing. Then it went through fact checking. And all of these people were complicit in that. So understanding how news works and the, the life cycle of a story is also important to understanding where we can stop that cycle and start to create stories that are more accountable, that are more respectable and are more fair. Um, yeah. So just one more question about collateral damage. Is there anything that you wish you could have included in that article looking back now, if you got the chance to write it today? I think the one thing that I would include now, but would have felt a bit impossible at the time, given it was just a different time, is that I think that there was a place to speak more about how we could make those stories more fair and more accurate. And I think the way to do that is through context. Jim Rankin at The Star does a great job at this. He does a lot of coverage of gang and gun violence, and he talks about how the context is so important. Here are here are the reasons why. Here's the context. When you force people into marginalization, when you force people into communities where, um, you know, they're not able to thrive, of course, violence will happen. And that's the context that was missing and from stories and from my my story. So when you were reporting on this in 2016, how did you go about the process? Was it a bit like was it difficult? Because I feel like people are more open to talking about this now, but still there's some 
definitely systemic challenges. It was really difficult. I thought the story was going to fall apart many times. So people just wouldn't answer me or they would say, I can't, like, I can't. And I'm taking that as like, I can't speak about this or I'll lose my job. And so I really had to do a lot of assurance and reassurance, um, especially because I was a student. And when you're a student, this is a space where you get to make mistakes. But nobody wanted to take that risk to be misquoted, for example, uh, when you're talking about race, when you're talking about gun violence. But I already had a, a career before I came to the school. I was already pitching stories about race and writing stories about race. And I knew that when when you wrote about race at that time, you had to be backed up by statistics. So nothing that I was writing was just kind of pie in the sky. Like if it didn't have a stat attached to it or a fact attached to it, I wasn't going to use it. But they don't know that. I'm a student. So I had to do a lot of like, you know, you'll have a chance to uh, speak to a fact checker. We can rearrange the questions if, if need be. But even as a student, I thought it was such a shame that no one wanted to talk about this because we had no problem as an industry talking about how black folks were criminal. And and honestly, a lot of the, the, the language said destroying Toronto's, you know, tearing the social fabric of Toronto, ruining Toronto. We had no problem saying that, but to talk about how we can make it right was such an issue. This is an industry question. So the shrinking industry, um, has it impacted the effort to make reporting more intersectional and ex inclusive? I don't think so. I think if you look at the coverage that's been done today, we have come such a long way. I know that, you know, it's our nature to be cynical and skeptical, but we have done so well. And I think that has to do with the pushing from students, from journalists of color to really get it right. And now when I teach my class reporting on race, I can barely ever find new examples of this type of discriminatory language because it rarely happens. So that's because now, even though the industry is shrinking, thank goodness we have people who are willing to learn. We have more pushes for inclusive reporting, more training, more workshops, more spotlight on these industries to get it right. So there has been a, a significant change in how we report on these issues. In the context of a capital idea, what do you think of style guides generally? Do they still have a place in journalism? I think they both limit inclusivity and highlight inclusivity. I think the mainstream style guides, right? So Canadian press has been very slow to pick up on language and that's an issue, but that's also why you have so many organizations, um, journalistic organizations that support uh, inclusive style guides. So if you go to, for example, the 519 website or GLAAD or, um, you know, any Black, African-American, South Asian style guide, uh, journalistic association style guide, you will find that they have the way, their way of doing things. And so I'm a big proponent of not adhering by CP for identity because identity is so fluid. It's so intersectional. There are so many ways that we identify that CP will never, ever be able to catch up on or include. And so when I wrote this, case in point, when I wrote this, very few publications were capitalizing Black. And after I wrote this story and really kind of dug into it of why we don't, when that story was published, there were several publications who were quoted there who were embarrassed 
by their response and then made the change. So TVO, for example, um, they made the change to Capitalize Black and they said that this this article, a capital idea, was part of the reason why other places followed suit and then CP followed suit. We know that you were involved in the changing of the lowercase black to the capital black. Um, but what was the process like? Was it easy to change the style guide? It was not easy to change the style guide. It was the hardest part of my degree here. It was really important to me because I had just come from a place from London, Ontario uh, to do my undergrad at Western. I had come from a place where I felt so invisible um, and ridiculed based on being black, but also felt so much community and love and friendship based on being black. So to come back here and be in a program where I, I chose to be here because I wanted to tell these stories and to be told that, you know, we don't capitalize black and these are the reasons. And the reasons that I were, was, was given were that we don't capitalize black based on emotion. It's not an emotional decision. We don't capitalize black because it's, it's an adjective. And those things didn't make sense to me because the moment that we were in now was that black was the word we used to describe communities. It was a term of empowerment, especially in the grief and community of Black Lives Matter. And it had been done before. And it had been done by a um, a black activist who changed um, the Encyclopedia Britannica, who had changed the New York Times in the 30s, uh, late 1920s, uh, early 30s to capitalize the N in Negro, which was the term that was used. And so I thought, well, this isn't based on emotion. This has been done before. Um, and so it was really a fight to get people to understand why it was so important. And it was really disheartening to hear from publications at the time that they didn't share that feeling that I had. But they also didn't want to be swept up in not doing it. So when we started doing it, when the review had begun to do it, which we were one of the few publications at the time to do it, other places were like, well, we need to follow. So it was rewarding, but it was very challenging to get the point across. I guess our last question. So since the podcast is called Reviewed, I think it would be weird to not review ourselves as well. What would be your advice for journalists who are part of the review of journalism to improve reporting on topics or to critically engage with these types of topics? You need to make a commitment and a lifelong commitment as long as you stay a journalist to take the time to understand the communities that you want to report on, especially when you don't belong to them. You need to engage with them. You need to go to events. You need to go to uh, community meetings, not just as a journalist, but to be there. You need to make the connections and have coffee and have chats before you even tell the story. Because I like to always say that we're not entitled to anyone's story, right? What do people gain from telling us stories, especially in this type of work where, you know, either you're speaking to a black person or a victim of violence, what do they gain? They gain nothing. They get to tell their story, but they might be ostracized. They might be shunned by the community. They might be doxxed, harassed, right? Um, just, you know, lose their job, lose their livelihood, their reputation, and so it's important that we take the time to get to know people and that we don't helicopter in and pop in for the sake of telling a story and that we put humans first. And for a long time, this industry hasn't put humans first. It was get the story at all costs. But when you want to engage in really difficult topics, you need to take the time to get to know people. 
I learned that the hard way when I was at the review. Um, I thought, well, I'm black. I'll just go into black communities. It was not easy. It took me years because, yes, I'm black, but they, you're always seen as a journalist first. And you're part of a community that's done tremendous harm to other communities, to many communities, most of them. So you have to remember that, that you're not entitled to anything based on your lived experience. You have to earn it. Thank you. I yeah, thank that, you. Thanks so much for making the time. Um, this is a great conversation. Yeah. yeah. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for listening. To connect with us or suggest a story, you can find us on TikTok and X at The Review of Jern. To read more about collateral damage or a capital idea, you can go to the Review of Journalism website. This episode of Reviewed is hosted, edited, and produced by Sahana Ranganathan, Mariana Schutze, and Lydia Reichen.